Chapter Eleven of The Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: The Secret of the Flames. Fetchworth, as everybody knows, lies in that part of the Fen district of Lincolnshire that borders on the coast, and in the curve of its mother-like arm. Saltfleet Bay, a tiny shipping centre with miniature harbour, drowses its days in pleasant idleness. And so it was that upon the morning of Cleek's and Mr. Narkom's arrival at Meryton Towers, they came disguised as two idlers interested in the surrounding country after having satiated themselves at the fountain of London's gaieties and bore the pseudonyms of George Headland and Mr. Gregory Lake, respectively. Cleek himself was primed, so to speak, on every point of the landscape. He knew all about Fetchworth that there was to know, saving the secret of the frozen flames, and that he was expected to know very soon. And the traffic of Saltfleet Bay and its tiny harbour was an open book to him. Even Withersby Hall and its environs had had the same close, intensive study, and everything that was to be learnt from guide-books, tourists' inquiry offices, and the like, was hidden away in the innermost recesses of his remarkable brain. Borkins, standing at the smoking-room window, a favourite haunt of his from which he was able to see without too ostensibly being seen, noted their coming up the broad driveway with something of disfavour in his look. Merriton had given him certain directions only the night before, and Borkins was a keen-sighted man. Also, the little fat Johnny, at any rate, didn't quite look the type of man that the Merritons were in the habit of entertaining at the Towers. However, he opened the door with a flourish, and told the gentleman that Sir Nigel is in the drawing-room, whither he led them with much pomp. Cleek took in the place at a glance, noted the wide, deep hallway, the old-fashioned outlines of the house smartened up freshly by the hands of modern workmen, the set of each door and window that he passed, and stowed away these impressions in the pigeon-holes of his mind. As he proceeded to the drawing-room, he set out in his mind's eye the whole scene of that night's occurrence, as had been related to him by Sir Nigel. There was the smoking-room door, open and showing the type of room behind it. There the hall-stand from which Dacre Wynne had fatefully wrenched his coat and hat to go lurching out into oblivion, half-drunk, and maddened with something more than intoxication, if Merriton had told his story truly, and Cleek believed he had. It was, in fact, in that very smoking-room that the legend which had led up to the tragedy had been told. Hmm, there certainly was much to be cleared up here while he was waiting for that other business at the war office to adjust itself. He wouldn't find time hanging heavily upon his hands, there was no doubt of that. And the thought that this man who had come to him for help was a one-time friend of Ailsa Lorne's 
the one dear woman in the world, added fuel to the fire of his already awakened interest. He greeted Merriton with all the bored ennui of the part he had adopted during such time as he was under Borkin's watchful eye. Even Mr. Narkom played his part creditably, and won a glance of approval from his justly celebrated ally. "'Hello, old chap,' said Cleek, extending a hand and screwing a monocle still farther into his left eye. "'Awfully pleased to see you, don't you know? Devilish long journey, what? Beastly fine place you've got here, I must say. What do you think, Blake?' Merriton gasped, bit his lip, and then, suddenly realising who the gentleman thus addressing him was, made an attempt at the right sort of reply. Uh, "'Yes, yes, of course,' he responded, though somewhat at random, for this absolutely new creature that Cleek had become rather took his breath away. "'Afraid you're very tired and all that. Cold, Mr. Uh, Headland?' Cleek frowned at the slight hesitation before the name. He didn't want to take chances of anyone guessing his identity, and Borkins was still halfway within the room, and probably had sharp ears. His sort of man had. "'Not very,' he responded as the door closed behind the butler. "'At least that is, Sir Nigel,' speaking in his natural voice. It really was pretty chilly coming down, winter setting in fast, you know. That your man? He jerked his head in the direction of the closed door, and twitched an inquiring eyebrow. Merriton nodded. Yes, he said. That's Borkins. Looks a trustworthy specimen, doesn't he? For my part, I don't trust him farther than I can see him, Mr. Uh, Headland. "'Awfully sorry, but I keep forgetting your name somehow. "'He's too shifty-eyed for me. "'What do you think?' "'Tell you better when I've had a good look at him,' "'responded Cleek guardedly. "'And lots of honest men are shifty-eyed, Sir Nigel, "'and vice versa. "'That doesn't count for anything, you know.' "'Well, my dear Mr. Lake, "'finding your part a bit too much for you,' "'he added with a laugh, turning to Mr. Narkom, who was sitting on the extreme edge of his chair, mournfully fingering his collar, which was higher and tighter than the somewhat careless affair which he usually adopted. Never mind. As the poet sings, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women, etc. You're simply one of them now. Try to remember that. And remember also that the eyes of the gallery are not always upon you. Sir Nigel, I ask you, isn't our friend's make-up the perfection of the, uh, elderly man about town? Sir Nigel laughingly had to admit that it was, whereupon Mr. Narkom blushed exceedingly, and the ice was broken as Cleek had intended it should be. They adjourned to the smoking-room where a huge log-fire burnt in the grate and easy-chairs invited. They discussed the topics of the day with evident relish during such time as Borkins was in the room, and smoked their cigars with the air of men to whom the hours were as naught, 
and life simply a chessboard to move their little pieces upon as they willed. But how soon they were to cry checkmate upon this case which they were all investigating, even Cleek did not know. Then, of a sudden, he looked up from his task of studying the fire with knitted brows. "'By the way,' he said off-handedly, "'I hope you don't mind. My man will be coming down by the next train with our traps. I never travel without him. He's such a useful beggar. You can manage to put him up somewhere, I suppose. I was a fool not to have mentioned it before, but the lad entirely slipped my memory.' He helps me, too, in other things, and there is always a good deal to be learned from the servants' hall, you know, Sir Nigel. You can manage with Dollops, can't you? Otherwise he can put up at the village inn. Merriton shook his head decisively. Of course not, Mr. Headland. Wouldn't hear of such a thing. Anybody who is going to be useful to you in this case is, as you know, absolutely welcome to Merriton Towers. He won't get much out of Borkins, though, I don't mind telling you. Hmm. Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it, Mr. Narkom? returned Cleek with a smile. Dollops has a way, and he knows it. I'll warrant there won't be much that Borkins can keep from the sharp little devil. Well, it seems to be getting dusk rapidly, Sir Nigel. What about those flames now, eh? I'd like to have a look at em, if it's possible. Merriton screwed his head round to the window, and noted the gathering gloom which the fire and the electric lights within had managed to neutralise. Then he got to his feet. There was a trace of excitement in his manner. Here was the moment he had been waiting for, and here the mastermind which, if anything ever could, must unravel this fiendish mystery that surrounded two men's disappearances and a group of silly, flickering little flames. He turned from the window with his eyes bright. "'Look here,' he said rapidly. "'They're just beginning to appear. See em? Mr. Cleek, see em? Now tell me what the dickens they are, and how they are connected with Dacre Wynne's disappearance.' Cleek got to his feet slowly and strode over to the window. In the gathering gloom of the early winter night, the flames were flashing out one by one, here and there and everywhere hanging low against the grass, across the bar of horizon directly in front of them. Cleek stared at them for a long time. Mr. Narkom, coming up behind him, peered out over his shoulder, rubbed his eyes, looked again, and gave out a hasty, "'God bless my soul!' of genuine astonishment, then dropped into silence again, his eyes upon Cleek's face. Sir Nigel, too, was watching that face, his own nervous, a trifle distraught. But Cleek stood there at the window with his hands in his trousers' pockets, humming a little tune, and watching this amazing phenomenon which a whole village had believed to be witchcraft, as though the thing surprised him not one whit, as though, in fact, he was a trifle amused at it, 
which indeed he was. Finally he swung round upon his heels, and looked at each of the faces in turn, his own broadening into a grin, his eyes expressing incredulity, wonderment, and lastly mirth. At length he spoke. "'Gad!' he ejaculated with a little whistle of astonishment. "'You mean to tell me that a whole township has been hanging by the heels, so to speak, upon as ridiculously easy an affair as that?' He jerked his thumb outward toward the flames, and threw back his head with a laugh. "'Where is your general knowledge which you learnt at school, man?' Didn't they teach you any? What amazes me most is that there are others, forgive me, equally as ignorant. Want to know what those flames are, eh? Well, rather. Well, well, just to think that you've actually been losing sleep on it shows what asses we human beings are, doesn't it? No offence meant, of course. As for you, Mr. Narkom, or Mr. Gregory Lake, as I must remember to call you for the good of the cause, I'm ashamed of you, I am indeed. You ought to know better, a man of your years. But the flames, Cleek, the flames! There was a tension in Merriton's voice that spoke of nerves near to the breaking point. Instantly Cleek was serious. He reached out a hand and laid it upon the young man's shoulder. Merriton was trembling, but he steadied under the grip, just as it was meant that he should. "'See here,' Cleek said bluntly. "'You oughtn't to work yourself up into such a state. It's not good for you. You'll go all to pieces one of these days.' Those flames, eh? Why, I thought anyone knew enough about natural phenomena to answer that question. But it seems I'm wrong. Those flames are nothing more nor less than marsh gas, Sir Nigel, evolved from the decomposition of vegetation, and therefore only found in swampy regions such as this. Whew! And to think that here is a community that has been bowing down to these things as symbols from another world. Marsh gas, Mr. Headland, please. It is wiser, and will help better to remember when the necessity arises, returned Cleek with a smile. Yes, that is all they are, the outcome of marsh gas. But what is marsh gas, Mr.? Headland. Merriton's voice was still strained. Cleek motioned to a chair. Better sit down to it, my young friend, he said gently, because to one who isn't interested it is an extremely dull subject. However, it is better that you should know, as you don't seem to have learnt it at school. Here goes. Marsh gas, or methane, as it is sometimes called, is the first of the group of hydrocarbons known as paraffins. Whether that conveys anything to you, I don't know. But you've asked for knowledge, and I mean you to have it. 
he smiled again, and Merriton gravely shook his head, while Mr. Narkom, dropping for the time being his air of pompous boredom, became the interested listener in every line of his ample proportions. "'Go on, old chap,' he said eagerly. "'Methane,' said Cleek serenely, "'is a colourless, absolutely odourless gas, slightly soluble in water.' It burns with a yellowish flame, which golden tinge you have no doubt noticed in these famous flames of yours, with the production of carbonic acid and water. In the neighbourhood of oil wells in America, and also in the Caucasus, if my memory doesn't fail me, the gas escapes from the earth, and in some districts, particularly in Baku, it has actually been burning for years as sacred fires. A question of atmosphere and education, you see, Sir Nigel. Good heavens! Then you mean to say that those beastly things out there are not lit by any human or superhuman agency at all, exploded Merriton at this juncture, and that they have nothing whatever to do with the vanishing of Wynne and Collins? Cleek shook his head emphatically. Pardon me, he said, but I didn't say that. The first part of the sentence I agree with entirely. Those so-called flames are lit only by the hand of the infinite, and the infinite is always mysterious, Sir Nigel. But as to whether they have any bearing upon the disappearances of those two men is a horse of another colour. We'll look into that later on. In coal mines, marsh gas is considered highly dangerous, and the miners call it fire damp. But that is by the way. What enters into the immediate question is the fact that there is a patch of charred grass upon the fens, where you say the vanished man Dacre Wynne's footprints suddenly ended. Hmm. He stopped speaking suddenly, and getting up again crossed over to the window. He stood for a moment looking out of it, his brows drawn down, his face set in the stern lines that betokened concentration of thought. Mr. Narkom and Merriton watched him with something of wonder in their eyes. To Merriton, at any rate, who really knew so little of Cleek's unique and powerful mind, the fact of a policeman having such extensive information was surprising in the extreme. "'You don't think, then,' he said, breaking the silence that had fallen upon them, that this, uh, marsh gas could have caused the death of Wynne and Collins, burnt him alive, so to speak. Cleek did not move at this question. They merely saw his shoulders twitch as though he didn't wish to be bothered at the moment. Don't know, he said laconically, and if that were true, where are the bodies? Gad! Just as I thought. Come here, gentlemen. This may interest you. See that flame there? It's no more natural marsh gas than I am. 
There's human agency all right, Sir Nigel. There's natural marsh gas, and there are other things as well. Those marsh lights are being augmented. But for what purpose? What reason? That's the thing we've got to find out. End of chapter 11